We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. As we talked about, uh, you know, we were uh, sort, sort of uh, storm warnings and freezing rain in a mixed bag that we saw earlier on. Now, and as we talk with Anthony Farnell, and I think this is twice in one week, which is getting out of hand if you ask me. Uh, we were being sandwiched before uh, between a storm and the other one was coming on the weekend. And guess what? It's time for that. Uh, and it certainly does seem like a bit of a mixed bag. Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. He is with us now. Anthony, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, doing well, Scott. And uh, yeah, that's uh, above my quota, the amount of times that we talked this week. That's right. It is warranted what we're seeing out there. All right, Anthony, put in for OT, man. You should be getting this. Uh, one one shot per week, that's it. Come on, nothing more. So we talked about this earlier in the week, and what seems weird about this one, Anthony, is is snow and then rain and then snow again. It's, it sounds like a mixed bag. Yeah, and it may start as a very brief period of rain. I do think it quickly changes over to heavy snow, and uh, now we're within about two hours of that happening in Hamilton. So it's uh, quickly approaching on the radar. And when it does start coming down, this storm is basically a two, two and a half hour uh, storm system as far as the heaviest snow totals. Uh, And that comes just around dinner time uh, till 8 or 9 p.m. And then it switches over to rain and it's showers for most of the night. The backside has a lot of cold air and some snow. But really, this is a a front sided storm that we're going to be dealing with this evening. So because we're getting rain in the middle of all this, accumulation going to stay? I think a lot of it will melt. The fact that it's raining and we probably get up to four degrees overnight tonight, winds are going to be strong as well, gusting 70 to 80 kilometers per hour and then switching around to the southwest tomorrow. So, yeah, much of it melts. And then already by tomorrow morning, we start to see snow flying in the sky and there may be another two or three centimeters throughout the day but anything that falls on saturday is going to stick that's the difference with this storm it is uh opening the gates to uh the arctic hell that is going on out west this week and that's coming east and obviously by then it looks like we're in for a a stretch of cold temperatures as we i guess stay into winter for a while uh is it different no matter where uh, depending upon where you are for example those in the city versus up on the escarpment yeah, I mean, up on the escarpment, you're you're going to get a bit more snow. The winds will be howling as well. I still think the city ends up with wind chills on Saturday, uh, getting down to minus 10 or 11 in the afternoon. Sunday's wind chill could be as low as minus 20 by evening, and that'll be the case Monday and Tuesday as well. Um, high temperatures, minus 8, minus 9. This is uh, cold that would be typical in most Januarys, but the fact that we haven't even seen a temperature below minus seven is going to make Mm. this really sting. And I think that uh, is the concern along with that lake effect snow and those bands will be oscillating. So if you have plans to go maybe to Fort Erie, Niagara, uh, or down to that Buffalo game on Sunday, uh, blizzard conditions expected there all because of the wind flow and the fact it's been so warm, there is zero ice on the great lake. So they are open for business. And I think those lake effect squalls are are really what's going to make headlines along with the cold next week. When you seem to be getting changes like this from snow to rain and then back to snow or colder temperatures, certainly, uh, is it tougher to predict this? Because it just changes so quickly, it seems. Yeah, and these snow forecasts are tough. Uh, That's one thing that we still have a lot of trouble with as meteorologists, as scientists, is trying to predict the liquid to snow ratio. 
Now it typically is about 10 to one. So let's say there's a, a 10 millimeters of rain equivalent, that would be 10 centimeters of snow. That is what we normally use. Now when it's mild, like we're seeing this evening, maybe it's two or three to one. So it's gonna take a lot more precipitation to get that 10 centimeters of snow. And that's kind of what we're juggling with along with compacting and melting. Uh, all that to say, it, it's still an uncertain forecast, but it's going to be uh, one where people head out this evening and say, what the heck is that? There may even be <laughs> thunder snow uh, this evening as well. How, what causes that? That is uh, friction in the atmosphere. It's uh, a very similar process to some of the thunderstorms in the summer. Uh, there's also some unknowns. Uh, the fact that we now have more wind turbines around the Great Lakes, that seems to be um, well, uh, becoming targets for these lightning strikes. So thunder snow has actually increased ah. uh, in frequency over the last decade or so since these farms have come up. All right. So heading into the dinner hour, snow, then rain, then cold temperatures and snow again. That's what we can expect for the next 24, 48 hours. Yeah, the first snowflakes just now hitting London. So it's coming along the 401. It'll be in Brantford by uh, about four o'clock. And then I'm thinking 530 into Hamilton. Uh, and then it picks up rather quickly after that. Snowfall rates of two to maybe five centimeters in an hour. Uh, it'll be rain, though, by at the latest 10 o'clock tonight. Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Anthony, thanks again for the time. Be well. Have a good weekend, Scott. We've talked about the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, many times on the show with Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. And it's in the news again, so let's bring him back. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine just before the storm. You got it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, why is the uh, the pipeline, first of all, tell everybody, let's start from the beginning. What is the Trans Mountain Pipeline and why do we own it now? Well, the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, expansion, there are actually two pipelines. One that's yeah. been around uh, for 71, 72 years, uh, no real incidents. Uh, that one uh, became the first pipeline in the world that brought oil from Alberta into Vancouver, and ultimately uh, the idea behind it would be for the export market. Uh, it literally was the first pipeline in the world that could do everything, uh, oil one day, gasoline the next, diesel the next, and so on. So it could send it in a batched way or batched form. That way it could uh, really respond to you know whatever the markets needed, especially in the, in the uh, lower mainland of uh, Vancouver. Uh, but of course, at 300,000 barrels a day, it, uh, it maxed out. And uh, there was absolute need 15, 18, 20 years ago, demonstrated that Canadian oil was needed globally and that uh, uh, the 300,000 just wasn't enough for the markets there. So the decision was made. Uh, Kinder Morgan picked up the contract, made the application, uh, had several pushbacks, obviously, from environmentalists and others. But at the end of the day, was given permission to build, uh, only to have yet again uh, legal maneuvers, lawfare used to try to block it. Uh, company became very upset, had already started to build, and uh, basically said to the federal government, we're going to sue your backsides uh, to the value that's far more what this thing costs. Uh, you fix this problem uh, or we leave. Uh, and with that threat, the federal government realized uh, its, uh, its nose was out in a, a joint. It had to buy it. It did so. And now, of course, uh, a 575 to 600,000 barrel a day pipeline now owned by you and I. 
at costs that are approximately eight, six times, six to eight times what it would have cost the original builder to uh, put in place at no cost to, to consumers could be ready in as much as uh, the next nine to 10 months. So um, the government puts up lots of obstacles, so it's very difficult for Kinder Morgan to do business. Finally, they get frustrated and say they're going to bail, so the government buys it and now has to deal with those obstacles. It does, but it didn't stand up. In other words, the federal government was saying, hey, these are the conditions by which you have to meet in order to get uh, this pipeline approved. They did. And then, of course, the federal government sat back and allowed other miscreants to come in and try to find different ways to attack this thing, including the B.C. government itself, itself, which said it would use every tool in its uh, toolbox to fight this thing, even though it didn't have the legal grounds to do it. That was led by the NDP premier, uh, uh, Horgan, who, of course, uh, is no longer premier. NDP is in power and uh, Trudeau has appointed his ambassador to Germany. Nice. At 30 Um, million bucks. So uh, what is the stage of this pipeline right now? Why do they need more loans, the government? Why why do we need more for this? Unfunded liabilities. The uh, cost has gone over. uh, Cost overruns well over the billions of dollars that was originally anticipated. You buy this thing for five, six billion bucks. It costs another 25 billion to build it. It looks like it's going to cost 30 billion to build it. Uh, although I'm just throwing numbers out, it looks like the uh, uh, some of the delays uh, and, and some of the requirements that this pipeline has had to go through to be built now isn't being paid by the private sector. It's being paid by the taxpayer who picked this project up uh, because they realized it, uh, it, it would have been a, a tremendous loss to the Canadian economy and to government. Like it or not, oil and gas is still the number one export and by far and away the biggest uh, economic generator to pay for the social programs that you and I both need, and as we as we all know, every Canadian tends to enjoy. So what has happened is uh, some of these delays has now meant that it's going to cost even more uh, for the pipeline to be completed. There isn't enough money there, so the federal government has had to basically pony up more. By the way, there are no buyers for this uh, uh, for this uh, particular pipeline because it's been so badly handled and. Uh, uh, can you know caught in a confusion of vortex of federal government uh, dilly dallying uh, because they want to appease their climate friends while at the same time recognize the economic realities and importance of this and many other pipelines. Um, they have no choice but to pony up. That means you and I are today a few billion dollars uh, poorer than we were this time yesterday. What if Kinder Morgan had kept it and the government never bought it, just went through? Oh, if it had gone through without objection, nothing. You, The thing would have been running five, six years ago. Uh, we would have seen the Canadian dollar probably trading at a 115 to one uh, to one U.S. dollar. That would save you and I at least 15 cents a litre in the price of gasoline. And I mean that because I can see it every day when I predict my gas prices. Um, it would have also meant, of course, uh, a significant narrowing of the discount of Canadian oil to world oil, West Texas Intermediate, which is, this, if you can believe it, uh, if we sell three and a half million barrels to the United States, we're selling it at 52 bucks a barrel, when in fact, American oil is still getting and fetching $72 a barrel. That difference of $20 a barrel times 3 million is a net loss every single day of about, uh, you know, about, uh, I'm just doing the quick math here, uh, about seven or $8 million to the Canadian economy. And that's just one, just because of one particular pipeline. So that's, you know, that's kind of what would have happened. Had we not allowed miscreants, many of them funded by uh, their charitable status, which never gets audited, many of them 
funded by organizations that have nothing to do with Canada, that are funded from other sources around the world. It's a real tragedy. And the reality, of course, today, that was three or four years ago today, is that uh, Canadian oil could very, and natural gas could very well have made it to international markets uh, to, uh, to remove the ability for countries like uh, Russia, uh, countries like Iran, uh, countries like Venezuela and others to hold us at bay. Uh, it seems that we've got our geopolitics completely backwards. And as a result, you and I as Canadians aren't just looking like thumb-sucking dolts, irrelevant on the international level. At the same time, we're hurting the ability for Canadians to make ends meet and hurting our economic outlook. When will this open? When will anything flow through it? <sighs> the best case scenario is the end of the year. Um, yeah. There was a two-mile, there was the two-kilometer uh, requirement that the... Uh, uh, the regulator has required that the uh, the uh, uh, the owner, Trans Mountain, the Canadian government, put thicker pipeline through an area that's going to require perhaps as much as another two years. Uh, they're still negotiating that. If that turns out to be a hard no, uh, and every, by all evidence it is a hard no, then we may not have this up and running until the end of 2026. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, giving us, giving us an update on our Trans Mountain Pipeline. Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great weekend, Scott. We've talked before on the show a couple times about the Professional Women's Hockey League. And uh, as a family, we've sat down and watched a couple of games. Sarah Nurse, obviously, of Hamilton, getting her uh, first goal uh, as a uh, as a member of Toronto's team. And you know, I, I, as I said to Radley the other day, it's, it's pretty exciting hockey. It's fast-moving. It's a lot rougher than I thought it might be. And um, I, I thought it was highly entertaining uh, all the way through. And it looks like they're getting, you know, good sized crowds out with the exception of New York City and such. So, uh, Abacus Data and Insights, uh, they conducted a nationwide survey just in the first week of January to see how people, th- what people thought of this. Is it making an impact? And to talk more about all of this, Eddie Shepard with his vice president, Insights at Abacus Data and here now. Eddie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. So, Eddie, uh, what do we think of the game, or are we even watching? Are we aware of it? There's a bit of a a mixed review on that. So, in terms of awareness, about two-thirds of Canadians we found aren't overly aware of the league, and I think that just comes to the fact that you know, it was only announced four months ago. So the, the work yeah. they put into this league in a four-month window is, is outstanding. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity there to to really ramp up the marketing and, and push this. And it's only in three markets across the country. So I think there's an opportunity to, to capitalize on the league and, and to push it across. So awareness isn't overly high, but in terms of the optimistic outlook, people are, are very favorable of this league so far. You brought up a valid point, too, Eddie. It was a real short runway here for starting something like this. There wasn't a lot of time to really put it all together and, and mark, I'm sure, um, uh, do a detailed plan the way you might like. So for the fact that they have only been in operation for a certain amount of time, have they made an impact considering? Yeah, so far, in, in terms of the kind of the optimistic outlook, right now we're seeing you know about four Four out of ten, so two and five Canadians think that the the league has the chance to be successful, and I think there there's a bit of reservation because you know there have been other women's leagues in the past, but I know for myself, having watched games and and going to a game recently, it feels very different, um, and I think Canadians are are starting to realize that as well. And those who are aware of the league, the optimistic outlook is far greater. So those who have, have you know watched or heard of the league, seventy percent think this is going to be successful. 
So I think that just shows that once you get people to understand the game and to see how it does differ, you know, it is faster, it is physical. Mm -hmm. uh, once you get people to understand that and, and to watch it and, and get a sense of it, that optimistic outlook, I think, will just continue to rise. Why is this different from the other leagues? Because, again, in that short period of time, it really did capture uh, quite a bit of interest considering. Uh, is it the fact that uh, there seems to be a strong corporate sponsorship on board in, in, a, in a TV deal? I think that's that's partly in play, too. And we saw a few announcements this week in terms of other sponsors coming on board and other partners coming on board for just the league as well as the, the team here in, in Toronto. Um, I think also the, the fact that there's a collective bargaining agreement is also outstanding for that eight-year window. Um, there's mm -hmm. the, you know, the league minimum pay that they have and the, the three-year window for contracts. So there's a lot of things the league has done to, to show that they're committed to the success of it. And I think in terms of the, you know, the, the player production and the, the game production, it's, it's much better quality than it has been in the past. Too, in terms of the the camera quality, the the on screen display, the the in person mm. quality, so I think they've done a lot to really learn from the previous leagues and and to kind of really take a step forward and, and make this something that is comparable to the NHL. Yeah, you bring up a valid point, Eddie. It is a strong presentation when you do see it. Uh, how does this advance women's hockey? I think there's a lot of ways. So myself, I you know my my young daughter started playing hockey for the first time this year. Oh, cool. Um, and, and for her alone, we watched the first game together. And last week after her game, she said, I want to make those girls proud. And the yeah. fact that she said that as a five-year-old is incredible. Um, yeah. So I think for, for young girls across the country, it's going to really inspire that new generation of female athletes to pursue hockey. And not just hockey, but just women's sports in general. Um, and I think it's, it's going to really help elevate the visibility and popularity of this sport as well. So I think when you look at it all collectively, you know, the main thing that this will do in terms of pushing forward is the visibility. I think also it's going to help move forward equality in sports as well. Um, yeah. So we see a lot of people in our survey saying that, that, you know, they recognize the league's ability to promote equality and inclusivity in the sports community. So I think that's, it shows the pivotal role of the league and not just encouraging young women, but also bringing down those barriers and promoting inclusiveness. I think those two things alone will, will really help drive this league forward. What about U.S. market? Canada seems all in. Uh, how important is that? I think in terms of that, that, that will definitely play a role. Um, you know, we see in other leagues, when there's only the Canadian presence, it, it does kind of, it limits the league to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when you look down what they're doing in Minnesota, it's fantastic. You know, because Ottawa broke the, the women's hockey attendance record, then three days or two days later, Minnesota did the same thing. Yeah. So I think there are markets down in the States where it can be more successful. Um, obviously, in Canada, it's, it's doing incredibly well in the three markets here, but I think it's going to take some research on the league's part to really figure out what markets they can move into and which ones will have the greatest success. Because I think in terms of TV deals and sponsorships, there is a lot of money in the States to be had on that side of things. So I think mm. for the league to really take off, they really, really need to capitalize on that side as well. Eddie Shepard with us, Vice President Insights at Abacus Data, talking about the Professional Women's Hockey League and how it is being embraced in Canada and what it needs to do to move forward. Eddie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. You as well. We certainly know where affordability is. We certainly know there's a housing crisis, interest rates, all of that such uh, stuff and such that um, we're, we're certainly feeling the pinch, the pain. With that, we're starting to see rates level off and in some situations decline. There's chatter next year, or this year, I guess, 2024 now, that uh, the U.S. Uh, may reduce its rates uh, up to three times over the course of the year. Let's bring in Don Fox, Executive Financial Consultant with the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, uh, with in Investors Group, and of course, you can hear planning your financial future every Saturday morning right here. Don, hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. 
Yes. Happy New Year, Scott. I'm doing really well. Yourself? So far, so good. So uh, what is the the mortgage rate and the housing market like now? I mean, people have been so cautious. Obviously, the Bank of Canada is trying to cool all of this down. Where are mortgage rates now? Well, first of all, the housing market has been very cold. Uh, it's kind of like the weather right now, actually. But uh, yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, in the last few months, you, you've seen a a definitely decline in the amount of interest in buying houses because of, again, interest rates being a lot higher. And so you're getting inch mortgage rates up into, you know, the 6% area. Um, and But they are starting to drop. The five-year mortgage rates have been falling. You're seeing, you know, in the mid 5% now. But still, a far cry from when people, a lot of people, renewed their mortgages or bought new houses during COVID that they were getting five-year mortgages at about 2%. Mm-hmm. So... You know, if you had a half a million dollar mortgage and it's coming up for renewal and you're paying a 2% extra, that's an extra $833 a month that you now have to come up with. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big deal and it, it can make or break your finances. So you can understand, you know, the extra stress that's going on in, in a lot of people's households. And as as we've been talking, we are starting to see these level out or even come down, but they're nowhere near going to come to where they were during the pandemic when everything was shut down. Yeah, that was that was a one-off. You know, that was a time where they dropped interest rates just to keep the economy going. And they were, you know, you go back to prior to the pandemic would be a better spot to look at where you're getting, more, you know, five-year mortgage rates at, say, 3.5%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody was quite happy with that. But, you know, they were trying to add impetus to the economy by lowering interest rates and uh, helping out everybody get through, you know, that two years. Nobody knew at the time just how long it was going to be. So, yeah, that was that was an, an incentive, basically, but I would not suggest you'll, you'll see that ever again. Uh, so now is now a good time to buy if you are looking? Uh, yes. I personally would rather see people buy a cheaper house with a higher interest rate than a more expensive house with a lower interest rate. And see, a lot of people are looking at... Why is that, Don? Why, why is that, Don? Well, the payment may be the same, but the mortgage, the amount you owe is really what matters. And everybody's, quite frankly, I see a lot of people saying, well, my payment is 2000 a month. Well, how much do you owe? And a lot of people don't even know the amount of their mortgage. They just know the payment amount. Right. And, and so that payment, the, the amount of mortgage is really what dictates your payment. So I'd rather see somebody right now, uh, you know... If you could get 20% off what prices were and the mortgage rates are, yes, a little bit more, it, it's definitely a better opportunity. And, and, and going forward, you'll have less of a debt. And if interest rates start to drop more, then you'll have less debt with a lower interest rate. And what about fixed versus variable? That's always been a big question pre-pandemic. What, what's the situation now? Uh, great question. And there's that crystal ball question. And it all comes down to how quickly interest rates start to fall. And I was literally having this conversation with a client earlier this week. And we are actually talking about going variable. Um, you could get prime less 0.5, prime less 0.7, depending on the institution. And prime right now is at 7.2%. So if you could get 6.5%, which is a lot more than a five-year mortgage. It's about a percent more than a five-year mortgage. But if interest rates dropped by by three quarters of a percent, you know, three drops over the course of the year, you got to think, okay, well, and if it continues to drop, it would be a lot cheaper um, maybe in a year and a half from now. So it's it's always that guessing game. 
um, five-year mortgages at five and a half, okay, at least you know what you're going to be paying. Yeah. And if you can't afford the variable, you can't afford 6.5, then really you don't have much choice. You may want to say, okay, let's just get the 5% and we'll just write it out for five years and see what happens. But if you can't afford a, a shorter term because interest rates, there's a lot of discussion. And as you mentioned, the U.S. has suggested that they will be dropping interest rates three times. They didn't say by how much though. Yeah. Um, but normally it's a quarter percent or greater when they do drop interest rates. So the fact that you're even suggesting variable is that's pretty optimistic, isn't it? For me, um, I'm, I'm one actually, I was all over trying to lock money up when they could at, at 2%. I said, okay, don't get greedy because at the time you could get variable rates were prime less 1%. Right. And you're, you're getting these, in, you get these variable interest um mortgages at 1.2 and i'm thinking okay you know what this isn't going to last forever just lock up and it sounds so good to have a 1.2 percent mortgage except you know now prime 7.2 and now you're paying six percent on that same variable mortgage so but when interest rates fall you want to be more flexible and when interest rates look to rise or you're happy with the interest rate, then it's better to lock in for a longer term. So yeah, I'm not normally I'm not a variable. I generally don't suggest variable rates, but uh, now I'm I'm actually looking at them again. All right, there you go, Don Fox with his executive financial assistant, Fox Group IG Private Wealth Management. And oddly enough, as I'm on the phone, Foxcroft uh, sends a note and says uh, something about having Don Foxy on as a great guest, and wanted to plug that he's on with Radley after six. What the heck is that? Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're full of foxes in this. Uh, I know. Next, uh, yeah, couple there's hours. lots of yeah, absolutely. And clearly, when he hears one, he wants to promote the other. There you go. All right, don't forget, oh. listen to Radley after. After six and hear the other one. You definitely <laughs> All right. want to hear Ron Foxtrot for sure with Radley, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter about health care and the situations that we are in. You know, it seemed uh, coming out of the global pandemic, we were going to fix all this. And, and it honestly seemed like we were making headway. And then all of a sudden, we realize our population has exploded by about a million people, whether it's uh, immigration, uh, students or or temporary labor or such. Uh, and the health care crisis, the housing crisis have seemed to accelerate. Uh, let's bring in Randall Denley. He's the author and column for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, his latest, A Cure for Paperwork and the Solution for Ontario's Family Doctor Shortage. Ontario's population is growing far faster than its supply of doctors, and many physicians are hitting retirement age. Randall Denley is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. Before we get into your article, Randall, I, I just want to ask you your thoughts on yesterday's news. Uh, it came out that the Immigration Department had warned the Prime Minister a couple of years ago that uh, these targets are too high. You're going to overtax. You're going to stress uh, not only health care, but all the ho- also the housing industry, the economy, what have you. Um, and obviously that information wasn't taken too hard or, or acted on, or maybe it is. Now the Immigration Minister is now the Housing Minister. What are your thoughts? And, and did we did we heed that advice? Uh, yeah, clearly we didn't. And I think any thinking person would understand that if you're going to increase the population at the rate that we've been increasing at, which is unprecedented, 
it's going to put a strain on systems that are inflexible. And the two biggest ones that people see are the housing and healthcare. I, I know the federal government's been running around shooting off policies in all directions, but really, you know, you can only develop housing so quickly. You've only got so many workers to do the job. And you still have to have housing that people can afford to buy. And they just ignore all that. And, it's, you know, the healthcare thing that I'm writing about in the post is really the same issue. Mm-hmm. It's another element of it. But if you're going to increase population as rapidly as we have in Ontario, they gained about 500,000 people in a year, double what we would have done in the past. So how do we get doctors for all these people? We can't produce new doctors fast enough to meet that rate of population increase. And because we've been increasing population faster and faster for the last several years, we're now in quite a deficit. And there's some disagreement about the size, but the College of Family Physicians of Ontario says 2.3 million people in Ontario, no family doctor. And it's just getting worse every year because, you know, new doctor volume coming in isn't enough to meet population demand much less take down this backlog we build up. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, or as I mentioned earlier, it seemed we were trying to get a handle on that post-pandemic, and then we're faced with another situation, yet stressing the system again. Uh, you brought up in your article about the admin side of doctoring and the amount of paper you have to push as opposed to actually seeing patients. I've heard this before. Why is this a problem? Is it not easier to hire admin staff to help? Well, it's an interesting point, Scott, and I think that they could choose to do that. It's not funded by the provincial government, and you know maybe some do do it, but basically you're saying to doctors, okay, you have to go hire somebody to do this work, mm-hmm. and it comes out of your own pocket. Right. And their point of view is, look, if you want me to be a doctor and say, see people, let's maximize that. Could you give our office some money for admin staff but a lot of the paper chase that I spend my time on as a doctor, I don't have to do that. And the um, this family doctor's college says it can be up to 19 hours a week, 40% of a doctor's total working time. Yeah. If you just look at this rationally as you know any enterprise ought to, you say, okay, here are people that are you know, well-paid, skilled, many years of training. We don't have enough of them. So why would we say, Oh, yeah, but you have to do all this administrative stuff, mm-hmm. thereby you know, reducing their capacity to see patients when we know we've got millions of people without a doctor. And to me, that just doesn't make sense, but I think there's, a, there's an overlap here that could lead to progress because the doctors are very keen to get this administrative help so they can see more patients. And what I'm proposing in this column is, why doesn't the province respond to that and cut a deal and say, okay, we'll we'll pay for the admin help, but in response, we need you to take more patients. It's hmm. very hard now to find a doctor in Ontario who's accepting any new patients. Yeah. But I think anybody who gets the admin help, say, okay, you've got the help. Now you can see more people. You take more people. And, and by my uh, rough or I think more or less accurate calculation, we could eliminate that 2.3 million backlog of people without doctors by increasing every doctor's practice size by about 13%. This seems... 
As you mentioned, Randall, uh, it's obviously easier to train admin staff than it is to doctors and get them on the front lines. This seems like low, uh, low-hanging fruit. This would be an easy, and I didn't say easy fix, but an easier fix. It is, absolutely, Scott. And it's amazing to me that this is, is low-hanging, but somehow, you know, they're not, they're not seeing Can't reach it, yeah. Well, what are we going to do? We'll, we'll do the things we always have done. We're going to, you know, create some more spots in medical schools and yeah. We'll create a small number of uh, interdisciplinary teams to take some of this burden off doctors. I mean, those are all fine things to do. But, you know, to me, it's like you're looking at a wildfire and you say, well, I'm not worried about the wildfire because I'm just going to turn up the pressure on my garden hose. That'll <laughs> do it. Yeah, they need a big move here. And I think, you know, if you just look at it in a political context, which, of course, the government does when anything is concerned, what a big win this would be going into the next provincial election if the government said, look, we had all these people without doctors, and this is a problem that you know goes way back into the liberal mm-hmm. We fixed it. We made a deal with the doctors. Doctors are taking patients. People have got doctors. It's very beneficial to the whole system, too. One of the reasons we keep hearing you know, so much about problems in emergency rooms is because if you don't have a doctor, yeah. What are you supposed to do? So you get people yeah. who go to an emergency room because they have no other recourse. If they had a family doctor, you know, a lot of them could be pointed in that direction. So it's a, I think, a very beneficial thing for the government to do, I and mean, that's why I'm throwing it out as an idea to see if it might catch on with either the doctors who I think get it, the government. I'm not sure they do get it, but it's a pretty easy concept. Randall Denley with us, author, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post in his latest, A Cure for Paperwork and the Solution for Ontario's Family Doctor Shortage. Ontario's uh, population is growing far faster than its supply of doctors. And uh, they're spending more time doing admin than they are actual do- actually doctoring. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Great idea. Be well. Okay. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's take a peek at the life and times of Ed Broadbent, former NDP leader, passed away the other day. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Here now, Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, well, you know, I was having a good chat with Will. Scott, i got to say you got some great people who are on your team. They're always so pleasant and nice, and they don't razz you as much as they should. <laughs> hey, it, it, I, I will not uh, deny any of that. It is a great team, and they help me so much uh, every single day, and I thank them for that. Uh, and uh, they owe you money for that, by the way. Uh, so I know you want to talk about the Prime Minister, because you always do, but let's talk about oh, Ed Broadbent, okay. NDP leader. Your thoughts, uh, How? and let's start with, how is the NDP different during Ed's time as it is now during Jugmeets, or is it? Um, I think, well, like all the political parties of 30 years ago, they weren't as polarized or as um, set on one particular sphere of ideology. The NDP probably a little bit different even in Mr. Broadbent's time. I think he always had to manage sort of idealists versus realists, and you see that in a lot of the obituaries. I think, though, he um, was more of... To, to be contemporary, and this is not to denigrate him because uh, uh, this is something your listeners would understand better. He's more of the Jack Layton style of leader, more common, more folksy, although like Mr. Layton, well-educated, like Mr. Uh, Layton had a history in, in, in academia. 
Um, and Mr. Layton, him, who, with the late Mr. Layton, got Mr. Broadbent to come out of retirement to run for him. But uh, I think mm-hmm. Ed Broadbent, unlike, say, some other NDP leaders, had appeal across the spectrum because he was seen as honest Ed. That was his brand, a decent kind of uh, fellow you could understand, even though you may disagree with him, you didn't mind listening to him. Uh, why did Jack Layton have the success he did? Uh, well, I think the Liberals were in complete disarray uh, when Mr. Layton became opposition. They had Mr. Ignatieff as leader. I think he listened to people like Mr. Broadbent and, you know, spoke a language and and, and tried a more practical approach to politics that uh, that that worked. Um, and I don't think he was as polarizing a figure as some other NDP leaders. I'm not saying Mr. Singh is entirely polarizing, but there are more elements of the New Democratic Party this day and age that have uh, more influence that perhaps are that Mr. Broadbent and even Mr. Layton were able to manage. What could Jugmeet Singh learn from Ed Broadbent? Um, well, Mr. Singh himself is a, is a nice enough fellow. I think he can learn just try, trying to find ways to connect more with the broader audience. Mr. Singh is very good with, uh, you know, certain young New Democrats, young socialists. I think he needs to find a way to drop some of the jargon and some of the marketing talk and speak to people the way Broadbent did in a fairly straightforward tone. And you have to be comfortable in your own skin to do that. And I think Mr. Broadbent was. Uh, I remember back in the day of Ed Broadbent and the NDP, and I remember being a young person and thinking, they all have unkept hair. They all have tweed jackets with patches on them, or patches on the elbows. Far different from what we're seeing with Jagmeet Singh in his uh, cars and, 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 yeah, and pinstripe suits. Does that play a factor? It might. I, I mean, I think it's a different time. Mr. Singh's his own person, but... Yeah, I don't think we need a tweed revolution and bring back the patches, Scott. But, I, you know, Mr. Broadbent wore it well. I mean, I read a great bit about uh, how at one point he was described as the sexiest parliamentarian. And his late wife, Lucille, said, you can call in a lot of things, but I sure as hell aren't calling them sexy. And, you know, that kind of honest depiction of, hey, uh, okay, Ed, don't get too full of yourself is what I think people liked about him. A bit like Mr. Kretschan, right, who turned 90 yesterday. It was sort of mm. ironic in a strange way that uh, Mr. Broadbent of, uh, of that era died the same day Mr. Kretschan turned 90. And Mr. Kretschan, again, uh, uh, though despite his wealth and his success, most people, you know, he would always win the poll about who you'd like to have a beer with if you were uh, able to have a beer with a, with a politician. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, remembering the life and times of former NDP leader Ed Broadbent. Have a great weekend, Tim. I'm going to haul out the tweed and the arm patch for you, Scott, buddy. That's it. Mess that hair up a little bit, too. You're far too groomed. Okay, <laughs> talk to you later. Bye. Have a good one. Uh, with the storm on the way, obviously things uh, supposed to get pretty hectic in the next uh, hour or so. Snow, then rain, then snow again, and uh, much colder temperatures. Uh, there are safety precautions to keep in mind and services available to protect those housed and unhoused in the city of Hamilton. Let's bring in Michelle Baer, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton, and here now. Michelle, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. 
And we thank you, Michelle, for always coming on and talking about the housing issue with you with us. I know it's a, a very uh, complex and difficult scenario, but you're always there to uh, to answer questions, and I appreciate that. And I have another one for you, Michelle. And we were just talking about this, so I'm going to blindside you with this. But my producer was talking about a buddy looking for an apartment, and on Kijiji, they found a trailer apartment for rent. So basically, somebody's travel trailer that they may not be using now, um, it looks like 20, 22 feet, relatively new. Is this an option? Is this something we could be thinking about? Is this even allowed? So we are hearing of folks that are renting um, RVs, and you'll and we've seen them in places around the city, I can say that uh, from a parking perspective, we're not allowed, it's not, um, RVs can't be parked in city parks, city parking lots, that kind of thing, but perhaps on private property. So I know that this is something that we've been seeing people try to take advantage of. All right, let me ask you another question. And again, I'm just throwing this out. I was talking to the tiny homeless people just the other day as well. And, you know, obviously, tent encampments, a concern, all of that sort of thing. Is it possible? And we're, you know, we're waiting for affordable housing and all of that. But this is, there's obviously a transitionary period here. You know, tents are one thing, but what about like campgrounds, like um, like a, a a campground setup with RVs in it, similar to what you would see at a campground, per se, as opposed to in somebody's, uh, or in a park, or in a neighborhood park, or on public land, whether it be an industrial area, or an area where there is parking available to do that. Uh, is that being considered? I mean, ultimately, cold weather, of course, is a significant concern for us, and we're concerned about the numbers of people that still find themselves in encampments right now. So we're looking at all options. Um, There are uh, jurisdictions that are using campgrounds. To date, we don't have that available to us, but certainly something that uh, we can look into. It might be a better option for some folks than tents. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, not for everybody, but there obviously is no one size that fits all here. All right, Michelle, snow's coming. What's the message here for those that are out? So the message for those that are out is that we are concerned about the cold weather, of course, that's coming over the next uh, day or two. Certainly we're heading there now. And as we see temperatures drop, it's important wherever possible that people that are finding themselves unhoused, shelters, that they try to get inside or at least get warm for a period of time. Our uh, winter response this year is not linked to a cold weather alert and instead operates from December 1st to March 31st. So all the options that are available on the website, whether that be the warming bus, um, extended hours at rec centers, we have additional drop-in spaces available. And in the men's system, we've been able to expand the number of men's shelter beds overall. So um, all of those services go till the end of March 31st. Uh, we have outreach, of course, are out, out this weekend and continue to be mm-hmm. and trying to find options for people. We're very um, it's challenging for us. Of course, you know, our shelter system has been at and beyond capacity for some time now and agencies are doing their best where possible to get folks inside. How concerned are you for those that are like in tent encampments this weekend? So hopefully for people that are in tent encampments, they do take opportunities to come into drop-in spaces when they're operating. We have the warming bus that operates overnight. It's getting great uptake and we would encourage people to take advantage of that. I know there are concerns for people that are in encampments. It's difficult to leave your uh, personal items or whatnot. And so even if you can get inside for periods of time, it would be helpful. 
Uh, what about going to the sites with a warming bus or something like that? Is that ever an option? Yep. So the warming bus uh, does a cycle around the city, a loop, I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. It stops at all of the drop-in centers that operate some of the rec centers. It stops near um, shelters. And so that loop, people that are in encampments, many are near some of those sites already. So they are able to hop on the bus there. Michelle Baird with us, Director of Housing Services, City of Hamilton, uh, taking care of the unhoused, trying to as uh, a storm arrives. Michelle, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we were talking earlier about uh, the life and times of Ed Broadbent, former uh, leader of the NDP, former federal leader of the NDP. Let's get Sandy Shaw's take. Ontario NDP MPP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. And here now, Sandy, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. How about yourself? So far, so good. We got a storm coming, so battening down the hatches here. But tell us about your experience, your meetings with uh, Ed Broadbent. Well, I, I didn't meet him very often, but it always left, uh, you know, a, a, a real um, impression on me. He was exactly how you would imagine uh, him to be. I know for many of us of a certain generation, he was always there. He was always uh, very, you know, uh, uh, you know, compassionate and kind and, and uh, wise. And that was what it was when I met him. I met him when I was doing some work on child poverty in Hamilton, and I met him in Ottawa. And, you know, he was doing such great work. He was responsible for uh, what was called the Campaign 2000, which was a, you know, a, 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 you know all-party pledge to eradicate child poverty by the year 2000. And so he was very, brought all of his, uh, his passion and his sense of social justice to eradicating childhood poverty. And uh, he, was, he worked with folks like Hugh Siegel, another generation, right, of, of uh, mm. statesmen, if I could say that. And then in the, pa- in the last few years, I did meet him at, you know, the Broadbent Gala. And he always, uh, in fact, he remembered me from the second Broadbent Gala, gala which is remarkable, mm. <laughs> because I can't imagine over seven decades of working in, you know, of service, public service, that he would remember um, me. I mean, I, and so... Hmm. You know, he really was just a, 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 from a different generation. It's a, it's, I feel really sad. He really felt, felt like just someone that was there that would always you know, say the right thing, do the right thing, and always was a, sort of a sense of hope that we could continue to work to, 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 you know, to make the world a better place for folks, right? Uh, as you said, different generation. But as a politician today, what do you learn from someone like an Ed Broadbent? Well, you know, what I learn or what I aspire is that you just have to keep working. You know, there's so many times in politics when, you know, it's, it can be demoralizing when you, you know, you're working towards a goal when you don't see any progress. You know, I, I work in the Ontario legislature and it will be no surprise that I, I don't agree with the, the direction the policies have dug forward. And so there are times when you just want to throw your hands up. You know, but you can't. You you have no choice but to continue to work to uh, have those ideals and that passion that uh, drives you every day. And and so it's easy to say, but it's really hard to live up to the kind of legacy that um, that Mr. Broadbent left, left us. Obviously, you're an MPP and in, in, in working with the Ontario NDP, and, and this is federal. But uh, what is the difference between the NDP then and now, his era and say Jugmeet Singh's, or is there? 
Well, you know, it's a, it is a different time and a different era, and I would say, but you know, some of the um, the, the uh, players have changed, and certainly the context has changed over the years. But some of the fundamental things that, that uh, the New Democrats always strive for, it's in our DNA, is the idea that we um, are only as good as our fellow man, so to speak. And so we're always at the in the core of what we do is what can we do. Uh, to make things easier for people, so people can live with dignity. There, there is, you know, that fu- fundamental um, purpose for the New Democrats has not changed. I would say, in is kind of sadly that the 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 sort of debate that you see at, you know, at um, Parliament Hill, that has changed, and that's a, a disappointment. I would say, in some way, it's the biggest disappointment that I've faced since I've been elected was I expected there to be more, you know, informed intellectual debate, people listening to sharing of ideas and, you know, informed debate. Uh, the thing that I note from uh, folks like, you know, Arab and Broadbent, well, he was hard and passionate on the issues. Um, he was never snide, snarky, never was personal. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that now. We hear a lot of that, Arsani. I have over the years just talking to various politicians who were once uh, doing what what many are doing today, and and I remember hearing I remember hearing several times that you know you'd you'd you know battle it out, you'd you'd debate whatever you were debating, and then afterwards you'd go out and have a beer together. Do you think we'll ever head back to that time where we'll all respect each other and agree to disagree, and then just work together, as you say? I, I hope so. I mean, that whole idea of, like, let's leave it on the ice, I thought yeah. that's what it would be like. But keep in mind, you know, I got elected when Doug Ford got elected, and it it, it was definitely, um, you know, it was a tense, heady time. And I I think what happens from, so I can only speak personally, but I there are, there are other MPPs from other parties, uh, you know, conservatives and some of the independents, you, you make relationships based on your interests so what you know at a, at a at a high level maybe your parties don't agree and you don't agree on policy but that you are you know doing this work together right and you have to you can only believe that that everyone that gets elected there is there to do the right thing and if you keep that in mind despite how how heated the debate gets in the legislature if you keep that in mind that everyone is there because they, they are doing what they think is the right thing. You know, it makes it easier just to, to, uh, just, just to, um, you know, put up with some of the shenanigans that happen there, you know, uh, another great NDP leader, obviously Jack Layton. How do you explain his success? What can be learned from that? Yeah. I mean, there's some things you can learn and then there's some things that are just a little bit of uh, fairy dust, if you know what I mean. So <laughs> he had, he had just this, special quality that he was able to connect with people and that doesn't come easily like there are special you know people over the years uh, po- politicians um, statesmen people that just bring something uh, that's that's hard to you know it's hard to uh, you know nail down and I think the idea that he also Jack Layton also never lost sight of his purpose right and he was very uh, he was very um, uh, compassionate. He was very. Um, he also was very kind, and he always had time for people. He really always had time for people, and I think that's a really important lesson because, 
you know, we're all really busy and sometimes we feel like we, you know, we're too rushed to listen to people. But honestly, if you take the time to listen to everyone's story, everyone has something to share. Everyone has something that we can learn from. And I think that is what, uh, uh, you know, Jack Layton and uh, certainly um, Ed Broadbent brought to the arena of politics. Sandy Shaw with us, Ontario NDP MPP for Hamilton West and Caster Dundas, remembering the life and times of federal New Democratic leader, former leader Ed Broadbent. Sandy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, Will and I were talking about this, uh, our content producer, and and we're going to try to work on this for Monday. So he's got a buddy that's looking for an apartment. Okay. We know what that would must. We know what that must be like. And uh, so he's answering, or he's looking at ads. And on Kijiji, he said he found an ad, and I got to remember, uh, trailer apartment for rent. Trailer apartment for rent. And as you can imagine, it's exactly what you think. It's uh, quite a nice, uh, looks like about a 20, 22 foot trailer. Uh, it looks like it's relatively new in somebody's driveway. And for 700 bones, you can have it for a month. Uh, sign of the times, good idea, bad idea. Is it, a, is it even legal? Do the neighbors get upset about that sort of thing? Or is it a possible solution? What do you think? Well, I don't think it's new because in Christmas vacation, cousin Eddie was living in the, uh, the, R- <laughs> the, the RV in the driveway. Yeah. Um, but I don't, that's cousin Eddie. This is everyone else. <laughs> I, okay. So if you can live on a boat in the Hamilton Harbor, which you can, you can, you can spend your winter. Yep. There are people who live in boats and on slips and slips in the Harbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would this not be allowed, particularly if it's on private property. Here's the thing uh, that I have, I mean, people have trailers in their driveway and they'll have guests over who will stay in those trailers. I've seen that. Yep. So what difference if it's one night versus 30 nights? I don't know that I see this being, I see this being a bylaw issue. I see neighbors complaining, but I, I, again, I think it's a great idea. Like we camped all the time. We always had trailers in the driveway and they weren't always being used. So, you know, I mean, well, let me, let me ask you another question. Let me ask you another question. Back in July or August of last year, there was a motion passed at city hall uh, regarding the housing issue. Matt Francis was one of the people who was behind it saying, look, if you choose when the encampments were bursting out everywhere, if you choose, you can invite someone to come and live in your backyard. So if the idea is that we want safety and we want people to be respected and we want them to, well, if you can have someone from an encampment pop a tent in your backyard, how in the world can we not allow someone to live in a motorhome in your driveway? That's a very valid point. And, you know, uh, whether I we think like this it or not, a, I don't know how you get around there, it. Yeah. And I mean, we saw in the news earlier uh, this week or last week that people were concerned about people who were taking RVs into vacant lots or, or uh, parks or whatever and, and stay in one level above the tent. But as I'm looking at that, I'm thinking maybe this is a good transition. I'm not saying take your motor home and park it in a park, but maybe you can create, if you can create a little village with tiny homes, why can't you create a little village with some motor homes, which is way better than staying in a, in a tent and, and, you know, the same same rules as a campground applies. You can't leave garbage lying around. You got to, you know, uh, be concerned of safety and such like this. But maybe this is a transition. 
there's another point to this, Scott, and I agree with you. I mean, this is the first I'm hearing of it and first you're raising it. So, you know, maybe in an hour I'll go, oh, I missed that point. But my first thought when I hear this is, as long as the thing isn't a Cousin Eddie RV, so it's not an eyesore. All right? Yeah, I, so exactly. Fair, fair enough. If it's an absolute dilapidated jalopy RV, I, I'm fine if the neighbors would say, no, that's that's an eyesore. We don't want that. No, you can't have the hood up and, you know, tarps right. over it and changing oil in the driveway. I, no. I, I agree with that. You don't, that's not fair to the neighbors, but no. I am so, um, I feel so strongly that what we don't want government of any level doing more of is infringing on what we do on our own property. I don't, mm. I don't want more government decisions and interference on what I can or can't do. I mean, we're not talking about a grow up, which I know that's illegal, but if it's, if it's something that is not really bothering anyone else. It's not doing any harm to anyone else. It's not dangerous. I don't want government deciding what I can and cannot do with my property. And if you've put a motor home that is operating properly, that is not a junk pile that is safe and you decide that someone can stay in your motor home, whether it's a friend who's visiting from England or someone you rent it to, why not? I agree. It'll be interesting to see moving forward uh, where this all goes, because there certainly needs to be something between point A and point B. I, I know you uh, got to go, but it's really a long transition. I know you got to go, but really quickly, I don't see this as much difference. I visited a friend, oh, now it's 20 years ago now in BC, in Vancouver, and he mm-hmm. and his wife at that time were just newly married. They had a place that was built in someone's backyard. And this is a common thing in BC. They have, it was either a garage or they've built a one bedroom little mini house and people live there. I don't see this as being a whole lot different, except that maybe it's on the front yard instead of the backyard. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.